Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Dr. Doug Sweeney, who is Dean and Professor of Divinity at the Beeson Divinity School at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Sweeney has co-edited the volume he's here to discuss today titled The Oxford Handbook of Jonathan Edwards. It was published in 2021 with Oxford University Press. Dr. Sweeney, congratulations on this impressive new book, and thanks for joining me here today. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be with you. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm looking forward to hearing much about the handbook. But before we do that, can you share with our listeners something about yourself and how you came to work on this project? Sure. Uh, Went to graduate school at Vanderbilt University a long time ago, the late 80s and early 90s. And by that point in my life, I was interested in Jonathan Edwards. I had been a student of Mark Knoll and other uh, Edwards scholars prior to my PhD program and considered writing a dissertation on him. But my my PhD supervisor uh, recommended that I choose another topic so that my dissertation wouldn't get lost in what he referred to as the crowd of dissertations on Jonathan Edwards. So I wrote a dissertation on a man named Nathaniel Taylor the founding theologian at Yale Divinity School in the 19th century who fancied himself an Edwardsian, but was a very controversial one. So the focus of my early work was not on Edwards, but uh, it did involve research in Edwards and even in the Edwards manuscripts at Yale. And so when I was done, uh, one of the jobs on offer was to work full-time at the Edwards Project at Yale. Uh, I was already used to Edwards' handwriting and the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. And at that point, uh, I pretty much became a full-time Jonathan Edwards scholar, went on to teach lots of other things as well down the road, but spent a couple of years of my life doing nothing but work on Edwards manuscripts and uh, transcriptions and help to publish the modern critical edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards. And ever since, uh, Edwards is always someone about whom I have taught uh, and written. So it was only natural that Uh, When asked to consider co-editing the Oxford Handbook, I would want to say yes. Interestingly, uh, there's one feature of the story that you wouldn't know unless someone like me told you about it. The Oxford Handbook of Edwards was actually the brainchild of Oliver Crisp, a good friend of mine with whom I've done other projects over the years. And then Oliver got so busy doing other things, uh, he had to pull out of the project eventually. And so Jan Stievermann uh, in Heidelberg, Germany, and I uh, carried the work along and and finished co-editing the volume. Very good. Well, as you mentioned, you've authored quite a few books on Edwards, many of which also published with Oxford. Maybe some of some of our listeners they're they're less familiar with who Jonathan Edwards was. Can you give us an overview of his life and and the significance of his theology? Sure. Edwards lived from 1703 to 1758. He was a Congregationalist and Presbyterian pastor and sometime college teacher. He was a tutor at Yale, ended his life as the president of what later became Princeton University. He was a very thoughtful and learned person, uh, and he ministered during the heyday of the revivals of the 18th century that in the U.S. we usually call the Great Awakening. So he's somebody who both pastored and was involved in intellectual leadership 
uh, of New England culture, uh, British culture, British colonial culture for much of the 18th century. And he's probably best known as an intellectual for uh, repackaging his reformed Protestant theological heritage in the Age of Enlightenment. And then secondly, uh, providing the most significant intellectual theological leadership for Reformed Protestants navigating the unusual circumstances of the Great Awakening. We, we've mentioned how you've contributed much already to, to Edwards Scholarship. Can you tell us about the state of Edwards' studies? It, it's become quite a, a vastly growing field, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, it's an exciting time to be involved in Edwards' studies, uh, and I want to underscore that. Lots of young people think, well, so much has been written about Edwards already, thousands of books and articles and theses and dissertations. There must be nothing left to work on, right? And the answer to that is, well, there are lots of topics left to work on. And Edwards' studies is in a really interesting time. Uh, when I talk about the modern history of critical scholarship on Edwards, I usually point to a couple of key benchmark years in Edwards' studies. One is 1957, and one is the year 2008. Uh, the modern critical study of Edwards was pioneered by Perry Miller. Perry Miller, uh, I would contend, was probably the single most influential American intellectual historian of the 20th century. He was not a theologian, nor was he a Christian. He was an atheist, uh, ethnically Jewish, but he was fascinated by Edwards uh, and was really good at interpreting Edwards in relation to the interests of secular intellectuals in the post-World War II era of American history and in relation to American national identity questions as well. Uh, 1957 was the year of the publication of the first volume of the Yale edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards. That was the volume on the freedom of the will, edited by a man named Paul Ramsey, who taught at Princeton. 2008 was the year when the Yale edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards finally came to completion. And by that, I mean the letterpress edition, the, the hardback volumes. There's 26 of them, actually 27 books in 26 volumes that we call the letterpress edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards was finished in 2008. But that finishing of the project was also significant because the leaders of the project at Yale in that period of time decided two things that have shaped Edwards' studies ever since. First thing they decided was to digitize the whole corpus, not only of Edwards' published writings, but of his unpublished, his manuscript material as well, which is a much vaster corpus of material than made it into the letterpress edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards. And the second thing they decided was to found a whole series of global Edwards centers on every inhabited continent of the world uh, for the sake of promoting the study of the material they were publishing. So ever since the year 2008, Edwards studies have been shaped by the work facilitated at what are now 11 global Jonathan Edwards centers, all of which give people access on every continent in the world to the whole corpus of Edwards material, both published and unpublished. So whereas in the mid 
uh, hundreds, 1950s and thereafter, uh, the field of Edwards studies was shaped largely by people uh, in the United States, sometimes other countries as well, but predominantly U.S. Americans who were interpreting Edwards in relation to secular intellectual trends. Today, Edwards is studied all over the world by all kinds of people from all different walks of life, many of whom are Edwards enthusiasts and would share uh, a love for Edwards' theology in its details that people like Perry Miller never had. So today, I would argue, we know Edwards' theology and spirituality much better than Perry Miller did. But probably the downside is we don't have as many Perry Miller-type scholars around interpreting Edwards in relation to sexual, uh, secular intellectual trends. We've talked about who Edwards was, and you've just given us an overview of the state of Edwards' research today. And you also give us a really helpful final chapter in this volume on that. So maybe you can tell us now how you see this volume fitting into the current literature. What, what unique contribution does this book make to the field? I think it reflects very well all the changes in Edwards' studies uh, I was just describing. And it represents this great diversity of Edwards' studies today, uh, geographical diversity, disciplinary diversity, ideological diversity, again, geographically. We now have careful Edwards scholars on every continent other than Antarctica, and some of the real cutting-edge work in Edwards studies is being done outside, not just of the United States, but outside of the West. Disciplinarily, we have people working on Edwards in English lit departments, philosophy departments, religion departments, divinity schools. We have independent scholars working on Edwards. There really is an amazing variety uh, of scholars from all walks of life who are interested in him. And then ideologically, there's a much more diverse set of critical scholars working on Edwards. As I mentioned before, there are people who love Edwards' theology who are working on it critically. There are people who really dislike Edwards' theology who are working on it critically. There are people who are ambivalent about it, working on it critically. And even in our volume, the Oxford Handbook of Jonathan Edwards, that some of the contributors would be Christian, some would be non-Christian, all kinds of people from all walks of life. Well, in the 37 chapters of this book, you have them divided into four parts, the background, sources, and context, the intellectual labors, the religious and social practices, and then his reception across the world. Maybe we could take a few moments to address an essay from each of these parts, so as we think about this first part, one of the essays I found particularly interesting was this chapter on Edwards's use of sources. Can you tell us who did Edwards draw from and who did he interact with in his writing? Maybe how, how these, these sources informed his own thinking. One of the fascinating things about Edwards is that he's pretty unpredictable and eclectic in his use of sources. He drew on everybody, everybody he could get his hands on. Now, of course, he's out in the colonies in a period of time where the colonies' libraries were not nearly as good as they were in Europe. But even so, he had friends uh, in Britain who were mailing him packs of books and pamphlets and so on. He was a voracious reader with a global intellectual appetite. He never left what would become the Northeastern United States 
physically, but I like to say he circumnavigated the globe with his mind's eye. And he drew on all kinds of people, continental philosophers and theologians. His favorite theologian of all was a Dutchman named Peter von Maastricht. Uh, his favorite polemical Calvinist divine was a Genevan named Francis Turretin. He drew on lots of his Puritan predecessors, people like John Flavel and William Perkins, Thomas Manton, Matthew Poole, Cotton Mather. He drew on uh, post-Restoration dissenting authors in Britain. This is after the restoration of the British monarchy in the 1660s and the outlawing of Puritanism there. People like Philip Doddridge and Isaac Watts. He drew on Church of England clergymen who were major intellectuals, people like Samuel Clark and Thomas Sherlock. He drew on famous uh, Enlightenment-era writers, John Locke, very famously, Isaac Newton. He was interested in the rise of deism, which he opposed, and read uh, deist writers like Thomas Chubb and Matthew Tyndall. He's what we call an occasional theologian or thinker rather than a systematic theologian. And of course, he's a pastor. So he's spending every week of his life getting ready to preach sermons, and he reads all kinds of people who work on ancient Near Eastern history and Greco-Roman history and biblical philology uh, in his effort to preach sermons well. And then he's also taking on some of the hot topics in the intellectual culture of his day, but doing so in an occasional sort of apologetic mode, which had him reading all kinds of different things. Well, you also have a number of really fine essays dealing with Edwards' intellectual labors. They're, they're chapters on his epistemology, on, on the person of Christ, pneumatology, the affections, many others. One other chapter here is, is one titled History, Providence, and Eschatology. So perhaps, perhaps many know Edwards to be a historical thinker already, but what type of historical thinker was he exactly? How, how did he integrate the understanding of the past with, with an understanding of providence and God's plans for the future. He, if, if what you're used to in history is the, the modern critical study of history, the kinds of history that people like me learn to practice at uh, research universities, Edwards will surprise you. Uh, he was a very traditional Christian um, historian who really did believe that God's eternal plan for the redemption of the world was the main driver of all of history. He was a, a Westminster Confession-style federal theologian. Not sure if that'll mean a whole lot to all the listeners, but what it meant really specifically was that Edwards thought about history in terms of salvation history, uh, which devolved from God's eternal inner trinitarian agreement to create the world, uh, to offer a, a covenant of works or a covenant of nature to Adam and Eve and their progeny in the Garden of Eden, such that if Adam and Eve had obeyed God and walked with God and obeyed his commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there would have come a time when God would have confirmed them in their walk with him, in their righteousness, and there would have been no fall into sin and no need for a plan of redemption from sin. But of course, Edwards thought that he, from eternity, God foresaw that Adam and Eve would indeed fall into sin, and the whole human race would fall with them. 
So God extended in his mercy another covenantal offering to the human race in Adam and Eve known as the covenant of grace. This is the the working out of Edwards' federal theology. And according to the terms of the covenant of grace, everyone who before the coming of Jesus of Nazareth believes God's promises about his coming, the coming of a Messiah who would save them from their sins, uh, can uh, be brought into right relationship with God by looking forward to Christ. And everybody in human history during and after the time of Jesus of Nazareth put, who puts uh, in, uh, explicit faith uh, in Jesus will be saved from sin uh, during and after Jesus' earthly life. Uh, and this eternal plan for redeeming the world drove everything that happened. Uh, the promises of God uh, revealed in the Bible drove everything that happened and were reliable and could be banked upon. And this is where Edward's uh, millennialism comes into play in the way he practices history. Uh, he's very eschatological and post-millennial in the way he thinks about how history works. He thinks history really is going somewhere that's revealed in the Bible. He thinks that the prophecies in the Bible in books like Daniel and Revelation really are uh, uh, reliable indicators of the direction in which history is going. And so Edwards believed uh, that a great millennial age was going to come not too much longer after he lived. He hoped that the revivals of the Great Awakening were going to lead toward that great millennial age. And he believed that as this golden age that would culminate human history came, uh, the world would convert to Christ. And at the end of that golden age, Jesus would return and inaugurate the new Jerusalem. So those were the main things that structured and impelled the progress uh, of world history, including human history for Edwards. He cared a lot about the details of history. He cared a lot about what we would call the secular study of history, but he wasn't a modern historian in the way people are taught to be historians today. He really was a, a, minister, a Christian minister and a theologian who cared about history and wrote about history in that mode. Well, Dr. Sweeney, as we move to think about how Edwards worked out his ideas and theological positions in practice, we come to this section in the handbook that includes chapters on his spirituality, Edwards as an exegete, as well as essays on, on his views on economics, education, and missions. I found Ken Menkema's chapter especially fascinating on Edwards' writing and preaching sermons. Maybe you could take a moment to walk us through this chapter and, and offer some insight into how Edwards went about preparing and delivering sermons. Sure. Uh, Ken Minkema is a, is a good friend, and I'm biased. But uh, let me say, I think he's the single most important facilitator of Edwards scholarship ever. Uh, he's the executive director of the Edwards Project at Yale, and he knows Edwards' manuscript material backwards and forwards. And he knows Edwards' manuscript sermons, and what another scholar named Wilson Kimnack has called Edwards' sermon mill backwards and forwards. In fact, Wilson Kimnack uh, who's still with us, getting up there in age, was a kind of a scholarly mentor to Ken Minkema when Ken moved to Yale and became familiar with the materials in the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. And Wilson Kimnack really was the dean of the modern scholars who work on Edwards' sermon material. So Ken, in his chapter, is reflecting partly 
some of the themes that Wilson Kimnack developed for us a few decades ago, uh, most famously in a long book-length introduction to volume 10 of the works of Jonathan Edwards, which was the first of the sermons volumes, was published in 1992. And in that volume, Wilson talked about what he called Edwards' sermon mill and got everybody thinking much more carefully and uh, vividly than ever before about Edwards sitting in his study day in and day out and making sermons. And uh, Wilson Kimnack, and then in Ken Minkema's chapter as well, there's this distinction between uh, what Wilson called Edwards' essential workbooks used in the making of sermons on the one hand, from his regulatory notebooks for the making of sermons on the other hand. The essential workbooks were lots of different manuscript notebooks full of thousands of pages of manuscript material on every issue, philosophical uh, issue, theological theme that crossed Edward's desk over the course of his life, known as his miscellaneous notebooks, nine long manuscript notebooks that survive today in New Haven. Uh, Edward's blank Bible, an interleave Bible with marginalia from Genesis to Revelation, full of all kinds of notes and commentary on all the different passages of the Bible. A four-volume manuscript notebook collection that Edwards wrote called his Notes on Scripture. These were miscellaneous reflections on various passages of the Bible. And there were lots of these other notebooks as well. Most famously, probably in the, the sermon production, would be a, a whole book on uh, the book of Revelation, that Edwards called his notes on the apocalypse. These are his essential workbooks. They, they uh, were places in which Edwards worked out the stuff that he would use in the making and preaching of sermons. And then there's a whole other set of notebooks that uh, Wilson Kimnack and Ken Minkum refer to as Edwards' regulatory notebooks. Those are the notebooks that regulated or ruled the actual practice of sermon making. Edwards wrote sermon notebooks in which he uh, jotted down all kinds of ideas uh, for future sermons. Uh, he had notes that he called his subjects of inquiry, uh, plans that uh, he made to explore various uh, topics uh, that would affect his preaching ministry down the road. There was his famous catalog of reading. That's this fascinating volume full of 720 entries of all the the books and articles Edwards was learning about that he wanted to get his hands on eventually. Uh, Edwards mentions nearly 800 books in those entries. And of course, we've said already, he's sort of all over the place bibliographically. Uh, even in the library that he left after he died, there were 837 different items. He cites hundreds of different publications throughout his manuscript and published corpus. So we have to imagine all this material in Edward's study, we still have the desk on which he wrote his sermons today. We still have a table that has a kind of a lazy Susan top to it that's octagonal, that has all kinds of different, eight, eight different shelves on which Edwards was placing uh, these bibliographical materials uh, with which he wrote sermons. And Edwards spent lots and lots of time in that study with those materials at that desk. He preached three sermons, three long sermons a week for many, many years uh, and spent the lion's share of his time week in and week out for his entire adult life uh, in that study, in that way, uh, writing sermons, most of which we estimate were between 60 and 75 minutes long when they were delivered. 
Very good. Well, Dr. Sweeney, as, as we're wrapping up, looking at this final section now in the handbook, it's clear Edwards has been a, just a booming figure in church history and philosophy and theology. And we've touched on this some already, but maybe you could fill in any gaps we've missed. How is Edwards being received across the various continents uh, right now? Well, as you might imagine, given what we said already, he's been received in a multitude of different ways by a broader array of scholars and enthusiasts as well uh, than ever before in history, by more admirers, I might add, than at any time since the heyday of the New England theological tradition that stemmed from his writings and flourished in the antebellum period, 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s in American history. Uh, And the most interesting thing, at least for my money, is the fact that all kinds of uh, scholars who never would have been well-known for working on Edwards in the 1950s are leading the charge today. People in places like Korea and Japan and Australia, Eastern Europe, Brazil, some of the really interesting material coming out in Edwards studies is coming from those places these days. Very good. Well, Dr. Sweeney, you've been really generous with your time today. It's been really good to hear from you about Edwards and about this great resource in Edwards literature. But before we go, can you share with our listeners what you're working on now and what they might expect from you next? Well, I'm working on a few different kinds of things um, uh, from a scholarly perspective. Uh, Jan Stieverman, my co-editor of the Oxford Handbook, and I, with a couple of other colleagues, are pulling together a volume for Penn State University Press uh, even now that's called The Bible and Transatlantic Pietism and Evangelicalism. We're exploring all kinds of cross-sections in the early modern Protestant uh, study of the Bible uh, that shaped uh, the work not only of people like Jonathan Edwards, but all kinds of pietists in continental Europe and other sorts of Anglophone uh, preachers and Bible scholars as well. I also have a long-range project going, a two-volume global history of Christian doctrine, uh, in which from beginning to end, from the first century to the present, uh, I'm telling the story of the teaching of the Christian faith in Christian churches in a global frame of reference, making it clear that even in the teaching of Christianity uh, over time, uh, the church has always been global and was only mostly European for a very short period of time uh, surrounding the time of the Reformation. And as you can imagine, that there's a lot of learning curves for me uh, in that project. It's very exciting uh, to be at my age and doing a project where there's some growth areas and I'm learning all kinds of new things as well and facing new challenges. So not sure when that will be done, but I sure I'm having fun writing it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like really valuable work indeed. Uh, For now, though, thank you so much for uh, helping with this resource, uh, this new volume, The Oxford Handbook of Jonathan Edwards, published with Oxford University Press in 2021. And Dr. Sweeney, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Great to be with you. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you again next time on New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.